0: This is Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and you're invited to keep reading along where you see the bold text, the responses to the text as I go along. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. She commits adultery. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. So, if y'all didn't know, I was away for a while in the month of July. Um, If if I didn't get back to any of your emails, I'm still working through them. Uh, I didn't forget, I'm not dissing you, I'm just working through a bunch of them. Uh, And while I was away, there was a woman that Karen and I met when we were in the mountains and she said to Karen and I, oh, you're from Philadelphia. I have a brother who lives in South Philadelphia. I'm sure you know where it is. It's down down near the stadiums, west of Broad Street in this little neighborhood. She goes on and on. She's describing it. And I said, yeah, I don't know where you're talking about. And she said, well, you're from Philadelphia. You must know. And she describes it again. I'm saying, I'm sorry. I don't know where you're talking about. I am For 17 years, I've lived in a part of Philadelphia along the Delaware River, this assortment of neighborhoods. Maybe he's heard of it, maybe not. Fishtown, Kensington, Port Richmond, et cetera. I had to explain to her there's actually many Philadelphias. It's a city of neighborhoods where if, like me, and I know this isn't all of you, if you happen to live and work in or around the same community, you can go weeks or months without seeing these vast other areas of of the city and she just didn't understand because she was from a much smaller town. And as I was coming back into the city on Friday, we were driving through other parts of the city that I don't spend much time in, but they're not in South Philadelphia. They're like five blocks away. And it was a reminder that even in our own area of Philadelphia, you can kind of curate your Philadelphia experience, or at least some of us can. Where, and actually development kind of supports this. You guys know what I'm talking about sometimes with like the way buildings come in and kind of like invite you along certain corridors and kind of even sometimes divide you among people groups so that my Philadelphia might be significantly different from another Philadelphia five blocks away that I like to avoid. I think this is true for some of us, not all of us, but some of us. And there is a parallel with reading the Gospels. We're reading through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going slowly. And we're going, I think with one exception, since January. And we we took a break, got into another series for a while in May and June, came back. We're going pretty much verse by verse. And one of the things that happens when you read a whole book of the Bible verse by verse is you come up against parts of the book that you would like to avoid. This is not one of the passages we would have chosen if we were doing like a 12-week survey on the Gospel of Mark. And there's actually nothing wrong with that, by the way. We've done that kind of thing before, and we will do it again. It serves a different purpose, maybe giving you an overview in a short period of time of a certain part of Scripture, which is an important practice. But this is verse by verse, and you get something else. You get more of the Jesus you wouldn't curate for yourself. This is a painful passage. It's in your bulletin, and we're going to be looking back at it closely if you want to, in addition to just having read it on the screen behind me. Why is it painful? It's painful because everyone knows someone who's been through a divorce. And generally, it's complicated. And generally, there are sins on both sides. And you come up against these strong and unqualified statements of Jesus, and you say, what the heck? I'm going to quote N.T. right here, a bishop of the Anglican Church in the UK who wrote on this passage. He says this, N.T. Wright says, in today's church, even reading this passage, particularly verses 10 through 12 on adultery, even reading these verses out loud is likely to be called by some cruel, unfeeling, unforgiving, exclusive, and a host of other names. So many people are bruised by the whole experience of marriage, Breakdown. that to even raise the topic, let alone to take a strong line on it, seems unchristian. The words of Jesus can seem unchristian. That makes no sense, but we all know how that feels when you come up against the uncurated Jesus. Just so you know, there actually is a good deal of compassion in this very passage and in the passages on either side of it compassion for people in pain, compassion for people in trouble, compassion for people in a vulnerable place. But one of the things that's important to see from the very outset of this passage, the first two verses of Mark chapter 10, is that talking about divorce was just as difficult in Jesus's world as it is in ours. I would say even more so. It also, it, it almost cost him his life right then and there. Here's what I mean. In verse one and two, look back, it's right on the inside page of the bulletin. Hopefully, you were able to get that on the way in. It says, Jesus left and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Verse two, and Pharisees came up to him in order to test him. So, the setup of this whole conversation about divorce is the Pharisees testing Jesus. Now, who are the Pharisees? If you've not been with us, the Pharisees are a very conservative party among the first century Jews, who all the way back in chapter three, we're in chapter 10, all the way back in chapter three, they began plotting with the court of Herod the king to kill Jesus. Two very different groups of people, by the way, who would, not, who would want nothing to do with one another. It's kind of a enemy of my enemy is my enemy situation the Pharisees and the Herodians, looking to kill Jesus, and they're putting him to the test in order to hasten his death. Why? Well, we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark, Herod put someone to death. Why did Herod put John the Baptist to death, if you remember? Anybody remember? Because of a divorce. Because John the Baptist publicly criticized Herod's marriage marriage to Herodias, as she came to be known, she divorced Herod's brother in order to marry him. And John the Baptist criticized this publicly. What's more, actually, this whole conversation with Jesus in chapter 10 takes place, we read, down by the Jordan in the wilderness, which is, by the way, where John the Baptist used to work. So there's actually a lot of themes here that are recalling John the Baptist and what it cost him to speak publicly about this topic. It was controversial then, it's controversial now. So, when it says that the Pharisees were trying to test Jesus, here's what they're thinking when they bring up the topic of divorce. They're thinking, maybe we can get Jesus killed the same way John the Baptist got killed over a conversation about divorce because it was controversial then even deadly for both moral and political reasons. That's the setup. Here's where we go from there. Verse four, the Pharisees say, is it, verse, excuse me, verse two, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? Put it back to them. They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said back to them, well, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I'll stop there for a moment. These verses are packed. They're packed with information about how you read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. They're they're packed with information about what a human being is. They're packed with information about how we are to relate to one another in the context of marriage. I'm just going to give you three things in this sermon. Three things. And the first two are very general and apply to everyone, whether you're married or not. And then the third one is particularly related to marriage. First thing, and I think this is fascinating. First, Jesus teaches us here that not all commands in Scripture describe God's ideal world. Let me say that again. Not all things in scripture, not all commands in scripture describe God's ideal world. There's a writer named Esau Macaulay who says this about this passage. He says, some laws just seek to limit the damage that we do to each other. He's talking about this law for Moses in Deuteronomy 24 that gave a man, and it was an only male privilege, in the Old Testament world to divorce his wife. This is not an awesome thing that God's applauding at and excited about. Jesus is trying to say, Jesus is trying to say that. In Esau Macaulay's words, he says, some Old Testament commands were intended to limit damage in the context of that day. Let me give you another example from the Bible, and it's popular. It's one that's famous to bring up in debates about the Bible, and there's no running from it. What the Bible has to say about slavery, for example. Now, at the heart of our Old Testament narrative of the people of God are slaves getting out of captivity. This rejoicing like no other in Exodus 15 on the far side of the sea, where the slaves get across the sea and their their captors are crushed, and it's a victorious moment for freed slaves. Yes, this was a what God wants, setting the captives free. And yet at the same time, a few chapters later, in the law of Moses, it's talking about how to treat slaves in your midst well. What is happening here? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Let's get rid of these these passages and just stick to the party when the slaves are set free. What's going on? And then in the New Testament, of course, you have the Apostle Paul writing to a community where there is a new believing Christian slave who's escaped... And he sends that slave back into the community and says, receive this one now, not as a slave, but as a brother. So it's like forth and back and forth. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Esau McCauley, the guy who I quoted earlier, uh, wrote a very good book that came out last year called Reading While Black. And I'd recommend it to any of you. And a lot of what he does is he talks through these difficult passages. He's, by the way, the, um, the guy who wrote the op-ed editorial in the New York Times after the sentencing of Derek Chauvin uh, for the trial of the murder of George Floyd. So he's, he's really kind of uh, literally in the front page of a lot of people's attention this year. And he wrote an excellent book of theology called Reading While Black. And he gets into this, and he says it's the same principle, and he's right. In the context of the day, God creates commandments to limit damage. Like treat treat your slaves better than that nation over there or that nation over there or that nation over there even though it's not the ideal. And that his greater purposes will be worked out over the course of centuries. There's more on this topic that we could get into, but it's the principle at work here the law of Moses entered into a world in which there was no division between faith community and civil society. Some laws existed to limit damage, like this one did about divorce. In a world where divorce was an exclusively male prerogative and women were extremely vulnerable and could be abandoned and just sent away for any reason, a certificate like this would show that this woman was lawfully divorced so that worse reasons for the divorce wouldn't be assumed. Damage to her would be limited. And yet Jesus takes all that and says, yeah, he gave you that concession because your hearts are hard. There was a damage limiting permissiveness that he let you have, and yet Jesus in this passage lifts our eyes and theirs and says, let me ask you the more important question, though. What does God really want? You know about him if you know his word. What does he really want, Jesus says? It's for two to become one and remain one. So that's the first thing. And I know that's a little abstract, but I think it's a really important point. Not all commands in scripture describe God's ideal world, particularly in parts of the Old Testament law. Here's the second thing. And this applies to every one of us, and it's immediately applicable. Secondly, Jesus says in this passage about divorce, you can obey the letter of the law while your heart remains hard and distant from God. Let me say that again. You can obey the letter of God's law while your heart remains hard and distant. Think about the rules we come across in scripture as guide rails. You know, like when you're on a road, guide rail here, I mean, again, I just came back from the mountains. I'm appreciative of guide rails. Don't go off the mountain past this guide rail. Don't go off the mountain past this guardrail or onto incoming traffic or whatever. But the guardrails are not the destination themselves. And taking rules and clinging to them as if they are ends in themselves without any reference to the destination. And the destination, by the way, is communion with the living God. If you focus on the rules, forsaking communion with God, which is what the rules are meant to lead to, you've missed everything and your heart is rock hard. And we're not going to get anywhere talking about rules because you've embarked on an adventure in missing the point. Every rule is meant to lead you to the heart of God, your everlasting Father. Let me apply this to other people, not to you because it probably stinks too much, to other people. Think about the rules that people in your life are breaking right now. Maybe they're your rules, maybe they're God's rules. You know someone who is breaking a rule in your life and it makes you furious. And if you can't think of it right now, just wait like five minutes before someone coughs the wrong way (laughs) or looks at you sideways on the way out the door or cuts you off in traffic, or doesn't invite you to something that everybody else seems to have been invited to, or something frankly far, far worse, let me ask you a vitally important question about what's going on in your heart when someone else breaks rules. Is the goal of your criticism to them, let's say you go to them and you confront them about their rule breaking, is your goal that they begin to behave correctly Is that your ultimate goal in approaching them? Or is your goal that they would know and enjoy more fellowship with Jesus, which will impact their behavior? When you legislate for other people, do you just want them to obey and stop bothering you with their disobedience? Or do you long for them to become a new creation who loves God and other people like never before? I promise you these are not the same thing. And Christians are great at acting like they are. Rules matter. They serve love. They serve love. I don't know if you ever were a new kid in school. I was a new kid in school in fourth grade, and it hurt. It was painful. Everybody else had their friends. I didn't know a soul. And the teacher thought, they thought, they were doing me a favor. All the teachers did this from like my main class, my art teacher, my gym teacher. It was the rule in the school that you assigned the new kid another kid to be your friend. It's like, hey, you're, you know, you know the crowds around here. Your job is to be friends with John. And it couldn't be more apparent that this person was only hanging out with me because they were being forced to. God knows what that feels like. Children know what it feels like when you're putting up with them because you feel forced to. Children know what that feels like. Spouses know what that feels like. When you're hanging out with someone because you are forced by a vow to. God knows what that feels like, and so do you. You can obey the letter of a law while your heart remains hard and distant. we talked about other people. One last word on this point for you and for me personally. In your journey with Christ, whatever it looks like, however long it's been, when you think about what you should and should not do, are you thinking like, how much can I get away with before it does me harm or I'm like condemned somehow? What can I get away with Or are you asking the question, how can I get as close as possible to the lover of my soul? Externally, they can look like very similar goals, but they are very different goals. That's the second point. First, again, not all commands in scripture describe God's ideal world. Second, you can obey the letter of the law while your heart remains hard and distant. And then thirdly, This is gonna sound really general, but it's gonna surprise a lot of you. God has a purpose for your life. God has a purpose for your marriage, and it is not, first of all, your happiness. God has a purpose for your marriage if you are married, and it is not, first of all, it's not like your happiness doesn't matter, but it is not, first of all, the purpose of making you happy. I need to take you uh, just finally here to some other places in Scripture. You know, this passage quoted by Jesus right there in verses 7 and 8, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This comes out of Genesis 2. This is where we read about the creation of the first man and the first woman. Jesus quotes it in the Gospels. The next time these verses, these famous verses are quoted in the Bible is in Ephesians 5, where the Apostle Paul is talking about marriage. And he famously says, I I did a wedding, I did a few weddings this summer, if you were there, I spoke to this passage, this two becoming one passage. So bear with me if you've heard this already this summer. The Apostle Paul says about these verses, two becoming one, he says, when you read in God's word in Genesis about man and woman becoming one, you need to know that this really refers to Christ and his church. This sounded strange to the first listeners. This sounds strange today. The Apostle Paul is saying, when you look at a husband and a wife, it refers to Jesus and his church. What does that mean? Here's at least what it means. It means that when you look at a married couple, it should make you think of Jesus' love for us. It means when you think of Jesus' love for us, it should remind you of a husband and a wife. Marriage is intended to be, created at the very beginning, is intended to be a living icon that you see all over the place that teaches you something about Jesus Christ's love for you. You have to know The only way then to offer this kind of love to your spouse, love your spouse the way Jesus loves us, how do I do that? You can only do that by receiving constantly the love God has for you. There are three in your marriage if you are married, you, your spouse, and God. The Apostle Paul says in that passage in Ephesians 5, talking about the same words that Jesus is talking about here, he says... Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. Laying his life down for the church. You just have to ask if you're married, if there are marriages that you're looking at from the outside. Does this look like the kind of situation where one is laying their life down for another? As Christ did for us. It's the question about marriage, and it's the purpose of marriage. The goal of marriage is to be formed in Christ's likeness as we sacrificially offer ourselves for the good of another person. Love your wives, Paul says, as Christ loved the church. What this means is, again, God's purpose for marriage isn't necessarily happiness. You can't actually aim or pursue happiness anyway, which you know if you've tried to pursue it. Happiness is something you get as a byproduct of pursuing something purposeful. And happiness comes about that way. But marriage offers something better than happiness. It offers joy. They're not the same thing. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is rooted in something that doesn't change, God's love for you. And joy enters the world by the cross. Joy enters the world by the cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laying his life down so that we would be set free from sin and death. This kind of sacrificial love is what marriage is all about. I know this is a lot, folks. The apostle and Jesus, they give us a lot, but it's all there. If you are married, your marriage is the bond, or I could say the mold by which you're formed into this Christ like love. Let me end like this You know, I, I, we make a lot of jello at our house. Uh, it's cheap, and the kids like it, so there you go. You, you know, jello requires a mold. Jell-O's got to have something to form it. You can't, like, put jello on top of jello and have it work out. You need something solid that doesn't give. And against that, jello is formed. You need the thing that doesn't move in order to be formed by it. And that's what our faith is all about: an unchanging God with an unchanging gospel with these unchanging things like our baptism that's once for all and marriages in our midst that are a picture of God's salvation for us. Listen, when you think of Mark 10, this is the place in Scripture where Jesus makes no qualifications to his commands about marriage and divorce. No qualifications. And the fact is there are qualifications elsewhere in scripture, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about adultery being a reason why some might have a biblical divorce. The Apostle Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 7 about a, a category of abandonment where divorce also makes sense. But here's the thing. We actually need verses without qualifications in scripture, which is what Mark 10 happens to provide. Why? Because you and I, and in our culture, we tend to go right for the exceptions. We tend to disregard the rule and talk about, well, where, where are the ways I can get out? Which completely ignores the fact that there is a mold that matters. Can I leave is our question, rather than how can I be formed in Christ-likeness by loving someone it's difficult to love? That's the mold. The rule. For, for the last few verses, guys, it's true that people get divorced in every church, and there's a thousand reasons, and it happens here. And I offer no undue condemnation in anyone's direction. I do say if you're at that place having those conversations, invite a pastor in. Take the risk of looking to what God has to say about that and don't struggle on your own. But I have to say something even clearer and more directive. Because this is just right out of the mouth of Jesus. If you're thinking about having an affair, don't. If you're thinking about leaving your spouse for someone that you think you have more affection for in this moment, don't it actually needs to be put that plainly. It's actually loving, believe it or not, that it's put that plainly. And I can introduce you to people who have said five minutes later, I would give a limb to not have done it. Because God can redeem anything. There are also scars that last and break and shatter untold relationships for untold generations. There is tons at stake at the same time. He gives us this word because he loves us. And he wants to form us into the image of his beloved son. And with that, I'll say nothing more. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.